Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. While Power Hour in its usual execution and in its title is about power uh, or energy, which is the source of power, uh, the broader philosophy behind it is what I call humanism or the philosophy of human progress. And this is the, the fundamental ideas necessary for human beings to move forward physically and mentally in a society that has a very deep-rooted opposition, even though it doesn't realize it, to both human well-being as the proper focus of action and human beings' very nature as transformers, beings who survive, who pursue their well-being uh, through the use of their mind, transforming nature around them. And because that's the philosophy and because it's ultimately about human life, I'm very interested in how this same philosophy applies to a broader range of issues. And in the past, we've discussed how it applies to things like the issue of recycling and waste, or the issue of agriculture, or the issue of aquaculture. And I'm going to continue to branch out into different topics. And one topic that a listener of the show, actually, it's not a listener of the show so much as a, uh, you know, a friend of, of CIP, and a really interesting guy uh, named Amish Adalja uh, brought up to me that there's a lot of interesting uh, parallels and relationships between the work that I've done in energy and particular fossil fuels and then the work that he does in infectious diseases. Now, Amish, Dr. Adalja, is interviewed all over the place whenever there's some sort of outcry about some outbreak or alleged outbreak of infectious disease. And so, as you might imagine, he gets interviewed a lot because there are a lot of such outcries. And uh, anyway, we were talking about it, and I thought it was really interesting. And it's a subject that I know, or before the interview, knew even less uh, about. And so I thought it would be really interesting to just ask some basic questions about what is infectious disease, what are the real threats, what are the obstacles uh, that we actually face, and to get really a pro-human, pro-reason uh, perspective on it as against just the blind faith that, well, technology and our current state of affairs will solve everything, or the we shouldn't be tampering with nature, vaccines and antibiotics are evil, let's not use them to take the two caricature positions. So uh, on this episode, we're going to have Dr. Amish Adalja, an infectious disease physician at the University of Pittsburgh, among many, many other uh, titles, which you can look on his website and, and learn all about his different credentials. But the main thing is he's a very clear thinker and explainer on these issues. So I was really excited to get to talk to him, and hopefully you will enjoy the interview. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. I am joined now by Dr. Amish Adalja, infectious disease physician at the University of Pittsburgh. Amish, 
Welcome to Power Hour. Thanks for having me. Now, from what you've told me over the years, you've been very busy in the media lately. Uh, what, what, why is the media constantly calling you and asking your opinion on things? What are they, what are they worried about? Well, media in, in general and for a long time has been really interested in infectious diseases. And infectious diseases, are, which we'll probably get into a little bit later, are a type of uh, medical condition that really strikes fear of the unknown in people. These are invisible microorganisms that are causing uh, people to be sick, and they can spread from person to person. They can spread from country to country. They can cause major economic and political disruptions. So the media senses these as important questions, especially after the Ebola outbreak in 2014. And because of what I do, I, in, within infectious disease, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about emerging infectious diseases, new diseases that come up or change the way they're behaving, and their intersection with society, politics, national security. And that sort of creates a niche for, for me where the media often reaches out to put these stories in better better context to warn the public or, or calm the public, depending upon what's going on, and to really try and project the trajectory of whatever outbreak or, or issue has arisen. So what are some other examples of these diseases? We'll talk about exactly what, what the essence of an infectious disease is in a minute, but you mentioned Ebola. What are, what are the others that people would recognize? So an infectious disease can, can, stem, can span basically everything from the common cold that people get multiple times a year to influenza to Ebola, to HIV, to hepatitis C, to the Zika virus that's spreading down in the Caribbean, to dengue fever, to, to staph infections that occur, uh, for example, in a hospital. So, so there's a lot of things that are in the media, and the media kind of turns out different ones based upon whatever is in the news or what's happened to a celebrity, for example. But those, they're really everything that you've ever heard of, from, like I said, from the flu to rabies to, to almost all of the big you know, stories of, of medical history often center around an infectious disease of some sort. So what, what then is an infectious disease? Is there such thing as a non-infectious disease? Right. Yeah, there, there are things as non-infectious diseases. So, for example, uh, a lot of cancers are not infectious, meaning they're not caused by an infectious organism. So just going back up one step, an infectious disease would be an illness caused by a microorganism, something like a bacteria, a virus, a fungus, a worm, a parasite, those types of those types of uh, conditions in which an invading organism or organism-like type of, uh, uh, something on the borderline, like a virus, for example, inf invades a person, and that person then engages in a battle with that, with that invader with, with, through their immune system, and then the result is the disease. So the so things like influenza are caused by the influenza virus, but another disease like, for example, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, that's an autoimmune disease. That's not caused by an infection, uh, as far as we know, or, you know, major depressive disorder. That's a psychiatric disorder that's not caused by an infection. So they're in the realm of medicine, what we talk about is getting to the etiology or the cause. And some things are caused by infections and some things are caused by genetics, environmental influences, uh, or uh, other things that happen to a person. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a helpful distinction. It's, it's I find with energy, there's the same phenomenon of we use the same we use the term over and over and over, and yet people aren't really clear what it means. And so infectious disease, I'll bet that it's used by just about everybody. Yet if you ask someone to define it, uh, it wouldn't be that 
you'd rarely get a good definition. So to follow up on that, when you talk about these invading organisms and the immune system, I don't think most people understand really what the immune system does. So what does it mean that there's a, a battle going on and what are the mechanics of that battle? So a lot of organisms have evolved immune systems. And what an immune system is, is a part of the body, some cells devoted into the body and some organs devoted in the body to protecting protecting the whole organism from the effects of being uh, being affected by a invading virus a bacteria so what happens is a bacteria or a virus comes into your into your body into your bloodstream or into a tissue and it sets off a lot of alarm bells and the immune system is a kind of a way of being of a very sophisticated police force it goes over there figures out what's going on have we seen this bacteria before have we seen this virus before if so, let's get those people that are experts at dealing with it back out there to, to fight this thing off and basically kill it, wall it off, and prevent it from doing harm. If we've never seen it before, let's just let's just go basically an all-out war uh, against this uh, microorganism in order to eradicate it and, and save the life of the host. However, sometimes that that battle, you all the symptoms you experience when you're laying in bed and you have the fever and the chills and the muscle aches and pains. That's all the collateral damage that's going on in this war between the two, between the immune system and the invader. And sometimes it goes, it, it, can, it can be too much. And that's when we have, you know, very severe patients who are in the hospital in the intensive care unit in what we call a sepsis or septic shock, where people's immune system has basically gone a little bit farther on that on the battle side and the collateral damage is too much to the host. So there's a lot of analogies I'm using from the military, and I think they, they are kind of apt, but it really is a, is a war sometimes that happens when you have a, a bacteria that or a virus or something like that that's causing uh, damage to the host, and that triggers the immune system to respond very uh, rapidly. So I realize that it can get very technical, but I'm curious, what's, what, what are the mechanics behind these things that you're, you're analogizing? You talk about troops and that kind of thing and identifying. I mean, those are things we associate with conscious minds, and yet our bodies are doing them completely without us consciously intervening at all, except, I mean, obviously later in the stage we do what it's just amazing. How can this, how this can possibly work? It's, it's, it's the mechanics of evolution have really developed the immune system in humans to be very exquisitely fine tuned and with such ability to generate diversity in, in the cells and the molecules and the proteins that they secrete that it really can almost, the whole human race basically can almost deal with any kind of potential microorganism uh, that you could even think about. And what that means is that when, what I'm talking about troops, what I'm, what I'm referring to are certain cells in the immune system, things like people may have heard of called lymphocytes or, or white blood, lymphocytes are a type of white blood cell. So it's the white blood cells that are the, are, the, are the cells of the immune system that then go out and basically literally do patrols or survey your body looking for microorganisms. So when they, when microorganisms, come into your body, they set off a whole, there, there are other cells that work with, they all work together, there's multiple different functions inside of these white cells, and certain cells will send alarms to other ones to bring more, and this is all basically finely tuned through evolution, because you can imagine what a survival advantage it is to have an immune system, because we live in a planet that if you were looking at it, as if you were an alien and you were looking at, let's survey the life on Earth, you would say, this is a planet with a lot of bacteria and some other things if you look at it that way, in terms of the biomass of the earth, how, mu how much, how, mu how many bacterial cells there are versus 
mammalian cells or human cells or, or even or any kind of thing, even plant cells versus bacteria. So we evolved this immune system, and through lots of evolutionary fine-tuning and genetics, it's able to recognize things that are foreign or non-self, something that's coming into your body that, that doesn't belong there, because, and that sets off alarm bells because your immune cells are basically, they actually mature in certain organs where they're presented with lots of different parts of human protein so that they don't react against them and they get this ability to, to, to be able to respond only to things that are outside of, that, outside of what's expected to be in a, in a human or a dog or whatever immune system you're, you're talking about. And when that goes haywire, you, ha- you have autoimmune diseases like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis when the immune system is reacting to itself. But this is a, a very probably the, one of the most complex organ systems of, of, the, bo- of the human body. And I think probably one of the, the most distinguishing characteristics of it is our immune system and how well it can uh, it suited humans for life on, on this planet. How does the human immune system compare to other primates or other mammals? The, the, the immune system is very similar to other mammalian immune systems, and that's why we use, when you're talking about infectious disease studies or vaccine studies, they often use other mammals like primates or, or mice or guinea pigs, for example. There are some intricacies, and the human immune system does have some differences, and, and some, there are some advantages and disadvantages versus our immune system versus others. It's not necessarily that, that, that human uh, immune systems or mammalian immune systems are the pinnacle of immune systems. It's just that that's the one that's best suited for the way a human lives. For example, people have been studying shark immune systems because there are certain variations in sharks. And the shark immune system is probably considered one of the oldest evolutionary immune systems on the on the planet that, that kind of resembles a human immune system. And that one is particularly suited for sharks. So it's not that one immune system is the best immune system for everything. And it's going the immune system is going to be evolutionarily selected based on what the the ecological niches for that organism that you're talking about. So the human immune system is very well suited to the human or primate way of life versus a fish's immune system for the ocean where there's a whole different slew of pathogens that they encounter. One more thing about the the basic mechanics of infectious disease. When your body, when you successfully fight off a disease, what what has happened to those invading organisms? Like are they carried out? What's What's killed? What's going on? For the most part, they are they are killed or reduced to such a, a low level that they can't cause any damage. So what that means is that the the cells of the immune system may actually physically eat the bacteria. They what they they may that's actually the word is macrophage, which means you know ear. Uh, so they can eat the bacteria. These the cells called macrophages um, can eat the bacteria or ingest the ingest the fungus, for, for for example, and then basically disintegrate it inside the cell in these special pockets that have acid basically or what can happen is and another way this happens also is that other cells can can make antibodies which are basically i I, when i describe them to children i think of them as little traps they're very basically um using another military metaphor like almost smart smart bombs that basically go and attach to the bacteria and then other cells come along and just grab them and, and and use the use the antibody to basically suck them back in and then eat them. So that's often what happens in a, when, when you're successfully fighting off an infection is that the immune system makes molecules and basically removes them from the site of infection or either by antibodies or just by directly eating them. And then you start to get then, better as the immune, immune response goes down. Then you start feeling better. Your fever breaks. Your, 
you, you have more energy, less muscle aches and pains, that type of thing. So that we, we've talked about the, the body's inherent capacity to do this. What's happening when we supplement that capacity with something like an antibiotic? So an antibiotic is a molecule that either they can be natural coming from other other bacteria or fungi in the, in the, in the soil, for example, or can be synthetically, synthetically created in a laboratory. What antibiotics do are actually go and affect the growth, the growth or the life of that bacteria directly. So a bacteria has to make proteins in order to live, for example, and an antibiotic may shut off protein synthesis so that that bacteria can no longer grow. So antibiotics basically work to help the immune system with this problem. In, in people who have compromised immune systems because they're taking certain medications, maybe they had a transplant, maybe they have HIV, there the antibiotics do a lot of the heavy lifting because the immune system is, is compromised. But what the antibiotics basically do is act in concert with the immune system to clear bacterial infections. And they do that in a variety of ways by physically targeting the, the bacterial metabolic and life fract, life. Uh, uh, the, the stages of the bacterial life cycle, you know, the way it makes its cells, the proteins, that type of thing, and uh, basically either kill it or stop it from growing, and then the immune system can basically mop up what's left. You mentioned that uh, in certain cases you have naturally occurring molecules that, that can do the job, and then sometimes they're synthesized in a lab. What would happen if we didn't have access to the ones that were synthesized in a lab? Well, so just going back, the very first types of, of antibacterial agents were actually synthesized. Synthesized, they were the salsa antibiotics made in made in Germany, and then penicillin was a natural compound that was isolated from from a mold that Alexander Fleming famously uh, discovered. And then since that time, we found some more in in soil, and also other ones have been synthetically made based on the same type of principles. But it's not just that you find these naturally, and it's like you look, you know, you find a a special herb and you eat it. It takes a lot of work just to get 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 this thing. When I say that they're naturally occurring, meaning I mean they they. I guess I'm simplifying what they actually did. Basically, sifting through dirt, looking for basically looking for molecules in in the bacteria that were in that dirt, testing them. So that was a very extensive. It wasn't like somebody just went into the ground and picked this up and ate it and it got better. Um, there there were some his, there were some historical reports of like poultices and and compression packets with with mold on them that that maybe helped infections, but that wasn't really uh, at the level of the science that that was behind, for example, the penicillin discovery. But the fact the fact is. Antibiotics, because they they target bacteria and bacteria are living things and they, they evolve just like we evolve, antibiotics often are rendered obsolete because the the resist because these bacteria become resistant to them. We're seeing it more and more. It's actually a major crisis right now is antibiotic resistance. And the fact is we're running we've ran out of finding antibiotics in the ground for the most part. We haven't really been finding them. So most of the most of the efforts now to combat bacterial infectious diseases have been synthesizing new compounds that maybe modify or make better uh, an older antibiotic or, or trying to find a new class of antibiotics or finding new compounds that don't really work like traditional antibiotics that can also uh, attack a bacterial product. So the, the fact that we have synthetic antibiotics has been essential and it, it's something that we're running, that the pipeline is running very, very dry from because bacteria are so so uh, able to resist anything you throw at them because their their genetics are such that they can they can mutate very quickly and they they reproduce very fast and they can evolve basically right before your eyes even in a single patient you can see evolution of resistance. 
Well, that's that's scary. And speaking of scary, let's then talk about epidemics. So what is an epidemic? We've talked about infectious disease, but what's an epidemic of an infectious an epidemic, disease? When you, when you think of epidemic in the context of infectious disease, it would be an increase in the incidence of a certain disease. So you could have an epidemic of plague, for example. And so you could say that the, the Black Death was an epidemic of plague, where a, lar- a large proportion of the population became infected Whereas before, there wasn't that much. An epidemic doesn't necessarily have to be large. It has to be a, an increase, a substantial increase from baseline uh, to call it an epidemic. And it usually, when you talk about an epidemic, it's geographically restricted. So you might say there, is an ep- there was an epidemic of, for example, HIV in Indiana State recently because of the, the lack of needle, ex- because needle exchange was illegal for injection drug users. And they had hundreds of cases of HIV pop up after contaminated needles kind of hit the drug market and that was an epidemic that was an epidemic in uh in indiana so we often it doesn't necessarily mean that there's thousands and thousands of cases but it does mean that there's an increase from the baseline in a certain geographic area now i mean the, the thing that i tend to worry about would, would be epidemics that are a function of something being contagious so with hiv i'm not particularly worried about hiv because there are only a couple ways of getting it and i think for many reasons, I'm at very low risk of getting it versus you hear something about e- Ebola or bird flu or something like that. And then the thing that we hear is, is, well, this, this, this could spread to everybody, right? It's not, it's not an issue of, oh, they screwed up with the needles or it's behavioral or something like that. It's, it's this, this could totally be out of, out of our control. So for me, those are the ones I'm, I'm most afraid of. Uh, in general, do you feel like, I mean, I'm not saying I, in particular, think a lot about this. In part, I, I don't. That's why I wanted you on, on the show, because I don't think people really think about it. But in general, before we go into specifics, do you think people are uh, too afraid of these things or not afraid enough, or is that the wrong way of thinking of it? I think it's the wrong way. You find some people who are not afraid at all and don't really worry about these things, and, and that's kind of given rise to, for example, the anti-vaccine movement, where they don't necessarily think that diseases like measles are, are something to worry about on one hand. And then you have people that are very worried about it and they go into this doomsday prep, prepping type of mode where they basically assume a zombie apocalypse is going to be, you know, is eminent because they watch movies like 28 Days and 28 Days Later and seen that I mean, these viruses can get out of hand. So there is a, an appropriate balance and that balance has to be informed by the actual science of what you're talking about and how contagious is the infectious disease. There's a, there's a continuum of contagiousness from something like tetanus not being contagious at all between person to person and something like measles, which is the most contagious disease known to known to the human race, that that you have to really strike the appropriate balance. And you, you do have to rely a lot on experts and, and historical evidence on how these diseases spread to find the, the perfect the, you know the, the best type of preparedness and worry worry that you that an individual person should have. And that often gets really distorted uh, through the lens of the media because sensationalistic stories and, and doom and gloom stories often play much better than something, you know, someone trying to say, you don't need to worry about, you don't need to worry about this. This isn't a really a big story. I think the way many of us oversimplify the mechanics of these things is we think, well, if it's contagious, if it can be spread to one, from one person to another through, through the air or something like that, then isn't it possible that it'll spread to everybody? You know, that well, you know, especially you see certain an outbreak of something. Why doesn't it it spread to everybody? And I remember the, the first time I really thought about this, uh, if, if I was really thinking, was when I was in junior high, and that book Outbreak came out. Maybe maybe it was in high school, but uh, 
no, I think no, no, not outbreak. That was the movie. the The book was the Hot Zone, and right. I think it was about Ebola. And there's just this idea that there's this thing called Ebola, and if it somehow gets around, it's just like it's killed, you know, just like it's spread to X amount of people and killed X divided by Y amount of people. Uh, so it's going to spread to us. So what 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 prevents the unlimited deadly spread of contagious diseases? So there, there are a couple of things. Um, the first is that not everybody is going to be susceptible. People have genetic variations in their immune system that protect them. So we even know in, in terms of HIV, there are people that are impervious to HIV because they have a genetic mutation. And we find out with a lot of infectious diseases that not everybody is susceptible equally. Or if they do get it, they maybe get a mild case or they don't get a full a severe case that actually kills them or, or, or causes them to have severe disability. So there is a variation in how susceptible somebody may be. The other thing is is that when a virus can, we talk about you know the, the, the way that the virus or a bacteria has to get, they have to find susceptible hosts. So if you're a person who's exquisitely susceptible to measles, for example, but you live in Mississippi, which has one of the highest measles vaccination rates, if you live in Mississippi, it's unlikely that measles is ever going to get to you because it can't get, it can't find a clear path to you because it keeps running into people that are protected or vaccinated, that have, that have herd immunity, what we call herd immunity. The herd kind of protects the person that's not that's hyper susceptible if they're in an area where there's high vaccination. The other thing is is that you know even in the worst of times, even before vaccines, even before anybody knew this stuff, most infectious diseases can't they can't necessarily if they kill 100% of their hosts. Where will they? Who will they infect next? You have to think of it from their perspective. They need to be able to spread to other people in order to live. They, in order to live, and, and that's their. That's basically their goal. Or their what? If you put it, it kind of um, basically personifying it, but it's not in, in making it sound like a a conscious actor. But it's not from a conscious actor, but from an evolutionary perspective. The virus wants to multiply. The virus wants to multiply. The bacteria wants to multiply. So if it kills everything it's not going to have another host. And it may be, something can be very deadly for a while if the conditions are conducive to it finding other hosts. But over time, a lot of infectious diseases will attenuate or become less severe because they kind of move towards symbiosis. This isn't 100% and not absolute. There are exceptions. But you will find that a virus or a bacteria that kills everybody finds itself without a way to spread to other hosts. And that makes it very disadvantageous. And the last point is, is that humans evolved in the same in the same primordial soup as all of these bacteria, viruses, fungi, fungi worms, and parasites. So our we've they, humans have flourished on Earth at the same time that these infectious diseases have been here. So our immune system. If you look at the genetic variations of our entire immune system, our, there's been said that the human the humans could basically respond to any threat because of the ability of our immune system to generate diversity in its antibody response in the cells that, and in the specificity of the cells that can be generated during an infection. So there are a whole host of things that basically prevent things from getting completely led to an extinction event. And the, there, there are basically are fail-safes based, based on evolution, I think, that, that have really equipped us to make it very unlikely that something that comes from this earth would be able to wipe the human species off the off the planet. Well, that's comforting on a certain level. Of course, we're all just individuals within that species. So, if, you know, half the species is wiped out. That's that's really bad. Still, what if? So, let's, let's take an example of of how we should address something like this. So, you mentioned measles is the most contagious 
disease uh, to man. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So what 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 do we do if there's a, a measles outbreak somewhere? And, and I guess what would what would you do if people weren't vaccinated? Like if you had a cluster where people weren't vaccinated, would you quarantine? Yeah. So if if you can't, so measles is a particular one because we just we just had a major outbreak in in California over the last uh, year or so centered on Disneyland. But uh, measles is something that's vaccine preventable, and vaccines have basically made measles much less of an issue than they were uh, s- several decades ago. But what, so so what what you do if if you can't vaccinate someone is supposed to make it away from measles, but a measles measles like disease for which there's no vaccine. If someone is contagious, you have to isolate them from other people so that they don't spread it to other people. And that would mean putting them in a specific area of a hospital or having them stay at home and have people that interact with them wear the appropriate personal protective equipment like gloves and masks, maybe a gown for for certain diseases and maybe more for other diseases. And then you kind of wait and you you have what we call, it's called social isolation where you at basic or or social distancing is the term we use in, in public health where we try to keep those people who are infected and contagious away from the general population. And we only do that when you're in a certain situation where there is a clear and present risk and there's science that actually backs up that type of, uh, of measure being necessary and, 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 and being able to be effective. Because sometimes you find calls, you know, even during, in, during Ebola especially, where people were being quarantined and isolated for reasons that were really not, were political and not really necessarily based on any type of scientific evidence on how Ebola spreads. And we saw that with the nurse at Governor Christie in New Jersey uh, quarantined at the hospital. So the, the vaccine thing, I mean, that it's just, I mean, I, I know that, I don't quote, no, but obviously I think people know I have a you know, very strong animus against that, that movement. But what do they, what do they say about something like, like measles where this used to be so bad for people and then we just have this amazing way to make people immune. What what's their answer to that? Is it like some natural thing or somehow we would if if we only went in harmony with nature we we wouldn't have these diseases? What's what's their argument? I, they have varied arguments, but I think the one that the, the one that probably has the most traction, um the the one that, that's the most that has the most comes the closest to a scientific case is measles isn't that bad of a disease. And, and that's, that's actually false, but there were lots of people that lived through times of measles and, and didn't have very many complications. People say, you know, my grandmother had measles and it wasn't a big deal, or my, or I know people that have measles, but it's, it's not true. Even during this Disneyland outbreak, 20% of the people were hospitalized. That's not a benign thing. I don't think hospitalization is something to, to joke about or, or to want to have to happen to somebody because measles isn't a bad disease when we have a very safe and effective vaccine that basically eliminated measles from this hemisphere. And uh, they basically just, they, I think we, they have the luxury of not living in an era where people die from measles. And, and thousands of kids die from measles in Africa currently. So they don't have that in their face. And that becomes, that becomes you know, people become complacent and don't really remember how bad it could have been because maybe in their own family anecdotal history, everybody had measles and everybody did well. But that's really Russian roulette if you ask me. In terms of contagiousness, you mentioned measles at, at, at one extreme. What does it mean to be really contagious? I guess in terms of how are these things passed? Because it, let's just take the cold. When you have the cold or the flu or something like that, you're told to cough in your hand or use tissues or not, you know, not be around people. But uh, what, what's your, the range of mechanisms? Oh, okay, cough in your elbow is the more evolved version. 
uh, you know, what, what, a, but I, I think we have these mental models of, you know, these terms in the air and I don't want any of these terms to get inside me, but what, I just want to know what that looks like in terms of what, you know, what's physically going on and what, what amount of stuff needs to get in you to be contagious for you to get it. And then, uh, yeah, just, just how it actually works. So I, I think with stuff like that, we tend to have false mental models in the absence of gaining specific knowledge. So it, it varies between what you're t- between person to person and between what type of infectious disease you're talking about. So diseases can be spread in many different ways. So we talked about measles. Measles is the reason why it's so contagious is it is airborne. That means it can particles, infectious particles of measles can stay in in an elevator after someone has gotten out. Uh, the average person with measles can infect, you know, eight, eight, 10, or 15 other people. So it's a very, very contagious disease because of the manner in which it spreads. Then on the other hand, let's go all the way to the extreme. So tetanus. Tetanus is an infectious disease. You get a cut, for example, and you get the tetanus bacteria in it. You can't spread that to anybody else. It, it's not. It's an infectious disease, but it is not contagious. And then in the middle are things like, for example, influenza, which are spread through coughs and colds, coughs and sneezes, but they, they are very big particles that basically fall to the ground by gravity in about three feet, so they're considered they're spread through droplets, not through not airborne. So they're a little bit less contagious, but more but def, but definitely contagious. And then something like Ebola or HIV, which are spread through blood and body fluids, are not very contagious if you look at it glo- if you look at it basically in the full context of the spectrum of infectious diseases. They're very scary and deadly, but they require exposure to blood or body fluids. Which, from an infectious disease fan- standpoint, taking their perspective of uh, taking the, infect- the the perspective of the microorganism. That's not a very good way to spread. You want to be like measles and be able to spread through the air very casually. You want to be able to be contagious before you have symptoms. For example, influenza, one of its claims to fame, is the day before you get sick, you can, you're contagious. Whereas in Ebola, you aren't contagious until you're actually spewing blood and body fluids, which is a kind of a gross image, but that, that's really a good way to think about, you know, is it, if I was around somebody with Ebola, were, they, were body fluids being emanated from that person? If they weren't, probably they're not at risk. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think the the we tend to think the airborne model applies to everything, the and the easy airborne model. So I, I like that image of the the heavy molecules uh, falling to the ground. So as as a, I want to ask about um, Zika virus and Ebola in particular, but just as uh, you know, since we have a doctor here and we're learning all this stuff, what what are the general precautions people should take to keep themselves safe from infectious diseases? Well, number one thing is you should be compliant with all of your vaccinations that, that are recommended. People put a lot of work, and I'm part of the people that help the vaccine recommendations sometimes, and uh, the vac- vaccinations are one of our best means to combat infectious diseases, and they basically added decades of life to everybody. So there should be, you know, people should be getting uh, recommend vaccines that their physicians recommend them to have because uh, they really do make a difference. And the other thing is a lot of it is just basic hygiene hygiene, washing your hands a lot. You don't need to go overboard with uh, the antibacterial soap, but just soap and water when you're in areas that, that, that have where you're exposed to a lot of people uh, all day, like in the gym or in the subway or at, at work or at, or at school. And then basically staying home when you're If you're sick and you're contagious, you shouldn't go to school. There's a lot of people, and it, it's, it's been, sometimes it's hard because of people's jobs or because of school or a big test or, or something that people have, but it's often better to stay home and not expose other people uh, if, if possible to do that or if you have to go to follow really good good hygiene, coughing into your elbow, for example, frequent hand washing, kind of staying three feet or so away from people if you, if you, can't, if you have a, a respiratory illness. 
also just general, you know, diet and, you know, not, not doing too much on too much excess alcohol or, or any other kind of substance, you know, stopping smoking, for example, people who smoke are much more susceptible to respiratory infections, just a lot of general stuff, almost all the kind of stuff that your mother hopefully told, told you. All right. Well, that's, that's good to know. All right. So let's talk about Zika virus, because this is one that I heard about recently. My, my parents were going somewhere in South America where there's some concern about that. They were told on net that they shouldn't be worried. But uh, you know, what, what, what was going on with this? How was it portrayed versus the reality? The Zika virus isn't something new, contrary to what a lot of the media has been uh, portraying. It's basically was discovered in the 1940s and had been basically a travel medicine or a tropical medicine oddity for a long, long, long time. And it's a disease, it's a virus that spread through mosquitoes, through the bite of mosquitoes. And for the vast majority of people, 80% or so, they have no symptoms at all. They don't even know they have it. And the ones who do have symptoms have fever, muscle ache, maybe a little bit of a red eye, a rash, and then it goes away in a week. And we, that's basically what we thought about Zika for, for decades. What's happened over the last couple of years is this, this virus has spread out of Africa and Asia where, where its natural home was into places like, for example, French Polynesia, places like Tahiti, uh, where they started to see some severe infections in those, in those individuals. And it wasn't that they, everybody, was still, everybody was still mostly fine, but there were this small subset that were having, for example, fetal, fetal problems in pregnant women where a baby may be born with too small of a head, which is a devastating condition, or some people having the virus trigger an autoimmune reaction where their body's immune system attacks part of their spinal cord, their spinal cord and renders them in, temporarily paralyzed. That's something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And we've also seen some other cases of infection of the brain and meningitis type of symptoms as well. But this is all new. So th this, this all started to be, there's kind of a hint of this prior to this last couple of years. And then what happened in Brazil is the, the virus was discovered in Brazil uh, a, a couple of years ago and basically has exploded in Brazil. And at the same time that, that Zika was spreading very rapidly in Brazil, they saw an uptick in these microcephaly or babies born with small head cases. And it, that triggered a lot of people to really reevaluate how much we knew about Zika and, and trying to really understand the full spectrum of illness that this virus could cause. And because society in general is very, has very low tolerance for things that affect the developing fetus, it's really sprung everybody into action. But we do still know that Zika, for the most part, is not a, is not a very serious disease. However, pregnant women have to really take special precautions because of the, the risk to their fetus, particularly in the first trimester. So that's why we're seeing this you know, WHO declaring a public health emergency of international concern, really trying to get uh, to attack this mosquito because there is no vaccine, there is no medication you can give people. The way to stop the Zika virus is to stop the mosquito. All right. What about Ebola? You mentioned a little bit before, but this is, you know, this is the one that uh, I have personally been most scared of in my life and I think is the most scary to a lot of people. So what's, what's the myth versus truth on this one? So Ebola is a, a deadly disease, a very scary disease, but it's not a very contagious disease. And it's been something that we've known about for quite a long time. 1976 was the first outbreak of Ebola. And we had 25 outbreaks of Ebola that basically came and went. And nobody really paid much attention to them. And this disease is one that had a, you know, a mortality rate that could reach up to 90%. 
and it was very mysterious. It came out of the forest. Nobody knew where it came from, and then it was very explosive, and then it disappeared. Again, back to that point I made earlier, if an infectious disease kills everybody that it gets to, it's not going to be able to spread very well. And that's what was happening. These remote villages in Africa were having these explosive Ebola outbreaks, which would then extinguish themselves because it would kill everybody that could be killed, and there was nowhere for it to go. But these outbreaks had been occurring in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in, uh, in places like U- uh, Uganda, Sudan, Gabon. They weren't happening in places like West Africa. And what happened in 2013 was we started to see cases in Guinea. And then those cases then took about three months to be identified as Ebola because Guinea had never had any confirmed Ebola cases before. And you're talking about a country that's very poor in terms of infrastructure and, 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 and socioeconomics that doesn't really have capacity to actually do infectious disease surveillance. So it took them three months to identify it. And by that time, the disease had basically spread across a very porous border region into two other countries, uh, into uh, into Liberia and into Sierra Leone. And because those three countries were, I think, best described as failed states, where the population doesn't really have any trust in the government, doesn't necessarily listen to public health authorities, because th- these are governments that have traditionally killed them, they're not going to necessarily believe them anymore when they tell them, you know, there's this deadly disease here and you need to take some actions. And we know that Ebola outbreaks can be stopped by very simple things, by by changing burial practices, because in Africa, a lot of times people will kiss the body, they will bathe the body before they bury the body of a dead person, and that really can be a, a focus for spread. So you need to change that, you need to find cases, isolate them, and give people personal protective equipment when they take care of their cases. That's all you need to do. And that had stopped 25 Ebola outbreaks before that. Very, very, very simple stuff. But those messages fell on deaf ears in West Africa because there was such distrust among the population. And we had people running from ambulances, hiding bodies, moving bodies across borders, killing people that were coming there to try to help them uh, because there was such distrust. And that allowed this outbreak to explode beyond any, uh, anybody's imagination for what an Ebola outbreak could do. But nothing really changed about the virus. It was just an environment that had never dealt with the virus before and weren't weren't able to execute the simple public health measures that were needed. And once those public health measures were in, you saw the outbreak basically wane to the point that the WHO is now not calling it an emergency anymore, although we still have cases at a trickle right now in some of those countries. But this was really got people thinking about what an infectious disease could do because those countries basically almost toppled because of the Ebola outbreak. One takeaway I have from this is just how much the use of human intelligence is important uh, in all of this. It reminds me a bit of, of climate and the way people think about climate, where they just think, well, it's it's just, you know, nature has a climate. And then just depending on how nice nature is, we either live or die versus, you know, no, we have an enormous amount of control over this depending on how we act. So, you know, a place that has an average 102 temperature can either be very habitable or inhabitable, non-habitable. Uh, depending on what we do with our intelligence and, and the form of technology. And here, it's, I guess it's no coincidence that in the more primitive countries that have less intelligent policies and less intelligence manifested in things like technology, that's where all the outbreaks occur as against, say, well, Orange County, California, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, exactly, yeah. Well, as, as countries move out of civilization, move in, into civilization, into a more civilized state and have basic the basic amenities of civilization, you will see infectious diseases fall fall by the wayside. And you for example, think about the fact that, you know, organ transplantation, which requires basically 
destroying someone's immune system on purpose in order to allow an organ to take. You can't do that in a situation where you're rife in the middle of infection. The whole, you know, a lot of people die from transplants because of infectious diseases. You can't even do that type of type of a transplant when, unless you have the ability to control infectious disease. So it's, you know, we, civilization has allowed us to transcend a lot of infectious disease problems because because of the technology that's developed and how safe it, how safe we are in in most of the industrialized world from, from most infectious diseases. And you do see that places that have not basically moved that way are, are, are you know, the underdeveloped countries. They're the ones where these infectious disease outbreaks occur. And they, some people call, in a weird analogy, they call malaria the immune system of Africa because so many people go there and malaria is so out of control in Africa that people go there and get killed. And that's why Africa can't be developed because malaria is a, is Africa's way of, ward, of, of what what it, what humans are like in the state of nature there in Africa is basically to die from malaria. You've been working on on a book project, which is actually the the uh, origin of us having this discussion, and it has to do with the the idea of an extinction event, the the alleged possibility of an extinction event of infectious diseases. Tell tell us about the book and why you were motivated to work on it. So uh, the reason that this book kind of popped in my head was because I had th- this experience during Ebola that I was on TV on lots of different programs, and I was always basically the voice of reason trying to calm people down, saying Ebola is deadly and scary, but it's not very contagious. People need to calm down, and they don't need to, they don't need to panic. They don't need to, to you know, prepare for an apocalypse. And people kept saying, you know, why aren't you, you know, you, when you're scared, we'll be scared. So you're not scared, so we're not scared. But what would scare you? And why weren't you scared of Ebola, or why weren't you scared of, why aren't you scared of, of, of you know, of Middle East respiratory syndrome? Why aren't you scared of certain diseases? And I thought that might be a good idea to write a book is is to try and delineate what about infectious diseases makes them more or less a threat to the human race as a whole, and what characteristics in a in a pathogen or a microorganism would be the ones that would actually you know make the hair on the back of my neck stand up, and. I think there's a lot of people that just, like you said in the beginning, kind of lump it all together, and they're afraid of it. they're afraid of any infectious disease get, catching everybody, getting into everybody. But there are certain characteristics and certain things that would have to be in place for an infectious disease to even affect a, a large swath of the population, let alone let alone extinct, make the whole entire population extinct. So I kind of wanted to explore that theme and and think about different diseases like HIV or influenza or Ebola or mad cow disease, and try and think about how those diseases would fare if they were if you try to put them up against the criteria of could this make the entire human species extinct? And that's basically what I try to do. What I'm trying to do in this book is try to explore that and, and draw out those implications and, and try and concretize what would really be scary and what really isn't scary from an expert infectious disease perspective. And you know, I, I, hopefully that the, the book finds some interest. I'm, I'm hoping to trying to find somebody that would uh, you know want to want to publish something like that because it is scary and there's a lot of infectious disease books out there. But I think it is a unique perspective. Uh, that I'm trying to offer in this book. The scariest thing that's come up this interview to me is is just the you mentioned of the resistance of um, diseases to antibiotics because the diseases are so good at uh, or the microorganisms are so good at evolving. Is that something to be worried about? And if so, what can be done about it? It definitely is something to be worried about because we are now treating infections that we are, we're in this case where we, we call it bad bugs and no drugs, where we have 
basically run out of a lot of in, a lot of uh, new antibiotics or new countermeasures against these bacteria, and people are are dying. And our population here in the United States is that is getting older. It's getting more more people are living longer with chronic illnesses. Are taking medicines that suppress their immune system, getting transplants. So that puts people at high vulnerability. And a lot of modern medicine. Just you know, think about putting you know an artificial an artificial hip in somebody or a pacemaker in somebody. That all requires antibiotics in order to make those surgeries safe. So if we lose antibiotics, all of modern medicine is going to basically grind to a halt to the you know pre-Alexander Fleming days where where surgery was kind of a crapshoot whether or not you got a post-surgical infection that may have killed you uh, rather than the surgery. So what, the solutions are, are are very hard because the, people have misused antibiotics a lot. And, and that, that, that's doctors as, as well as uh, patients who demand antibiotics for common colds and viral infections, which uh, aren't amenable to antibiotics, where the antibiotics have really no effect on a virus, but people will often go to a, you know, an outpatient clinic or, and, and instead of the doctor, instead of really wanting to take the time to, to explain to the patient that it's much easier, the path of least resistance, just to write a prescription for an antibiotic and have them take it. So this is what's happened is we've got this very injudicious use of antibiotics. And, and the solution is, is we have to get very smart about using antibiotics. They really need to be thought of as precious commodities that can't be squandered. And it's really going to take almost a, a whole a societal type of approach with doctors and patients and a lot of education to the general public to not want to reflexively want to take an antibiotic. And at the same time, we have to incentivize industry start looking for new antibiotics or alternatives to antibiotics, and some of that is already going on, um, and developing new vaccines against bacterial infections so we don't even have these infections anymore. So it's going to be a really a major moon, you know, if you talk, they talk about the cancer moonshot uh, that was recently announced, I think there there is a, a, re, a really big reason to have a, a moonshot for combating antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance in bacteria, and it's it's not an easy solution because you you want to make sure that people that, that need antibiotics are getting them, but you don't want them to be used judiciously. So it's going to take basically a revolution in medicine to get better at using antibiotics and using them only when they're necessary. And that will be, you know, very pinpoint, sophisticated, fast diagnostic tests so that you can tell people that you've got a virus, you're not getting an antibiotic. That type of thing uh, needs to happen as well. I think it's really hurt by the fact that a lot of the people who criticize antibiotics have are completely package dealing legitimate problems with overusing them with just any kind of medical technology as such. So you have a lot of the anti-vaccine people being anti-antibiotic. And so I think it's easy to write them off just as cranks as a whole and to write off that kind of issue uh, versus having a truly a truly objective view where in, in a certain context, it's wrong to use certain kinds of antibiotics for the, the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, it's a, it's a very hard battle to, to win because people have basically become addicted to antibiotics. It's become a reflex that they, any, you know, a child gets a cough or cold when they go to the pediatrician's office and they get an antibiotic and they get better on their own and everybody says, oh, the antibiotic did it, but the disease just ran its course and it was probably caused by a virus. And people don't think about the long-term consequences. They don't think long-range, thinking the more we use antibiotics judiciously, the less likely are we're going to have them when we actually need them. Now, is that true on the individual level, or is it more of a, an aggregate societal thing? Both. Both. So a, a person, as soon as you take your first dose of antibiotics, it changes all the bacteria that live in your body. You have to remember, a human is composed of more bacterial cells than human cells, and this, these bacteria live all through your intestines, all over your skin, basically in every nook and cranny of your body there are bacteria. And those bacteria then, they get exposed to that antibiotic, and that 
that sets their genetic machinery moving to develop resistance. And so then later down the line, so we know people that have been chronic. If, if someone comes to me in the hospital and they've been on antibiotics 10 times in the last five years for ear infections, I know that whatever ear, if they, now they have a real true bacterial ear infection, I know that that bacteria is not going to be you know, a garden variety bacteria. I have to use a stronger antibiotic because the, that person's been exposed to so many antibiotics. So that, that definitely affects the individual. So the less antibiotics a person has, the better they are. And I, I myself try to stay away from them unless I, necessar- and unless I really have a bacterial infection that requires them. And then on the societal use, the number of, the, 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 I guess, the pounds or the tons of antibiotics used in a country correlates with how much resistance you see at a population level. And we even use antibiotics in, for example, farming, for example, where there is a lot of resistance that, that's developing in, in farm animals because antibiotics make farm animals grow faster and hopefully they'll find a better substitute. But I understand the economic incentive to use antibiotics in farm animals just as a growth promoter because it's one of their side effects is they promote growth. They, the pigs get fatter, they go to market faster. But that all the antibiotics that are out there are making the bacteria much more attuned to what we're going to use on them. And and that becomes, you know, it's almost like an existential battle a little bit that when we're, when we're showing all of our cards to people, to, to the bacteria, that they're going to end up developing resistance and, and we're kind of stuck and you know, the day in and day out of an infectious disease doctor is taking not taking care of Ebola and, and Zika, but taking care of people with antimicrobial resistant antibiotic resistant infections. That's the majority of my time is spent doing that. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, uh, yeah, this is this has been great. Any any final thoughts you want to share with the listeners? I, I think that infectious disease is a really fascinating topic, even if you're not interested in it as a as a from a medical perspective, it is an adventure story, and, and all of these great people like Louis Pasteur and Edward Jenner, uh, Walter Reed, these are great stories to read about because infectious disease truly have the the ability to really affect the affect the, the entire the entire world. It can spread very rapidly. They can change. They can they can play pivotal roles in history, for example, like the Black Death. So I, I do think it's a really fascinating. Uh, topic and even you know to bring it back to some of the energy stuff that you work on, Alex. You know companies like Marathon Oil, where they have used uh, very sophisticated malaria control mechanisms in order to keep their workers safe from malaria, uh, so that they can drill, so that they can operate the, their oil machinery. Is, is you know that's just another example of how infectious disease are important even in any industry that's cross cutting. Uh, great. Well, I feel like I have a, a higher chance of remaining healthy just from this interview. So I hope others do too. And we'll definitely keep in touch about the, the book idea. I think the, that that's a really exciting idea. And it's certainly a topic that I, I don't see anything uh, good on and that, that that's literally uh, life and death, both in terms of not being subject to outbreaks and also uh, knowing what to do as an individual, given, given the mechanics of these, disease, these diseases, given the mechanics of antibiotics given the mechanics of contagiousness. So uh, thanks so much for for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Amish Adalja for joining us and enlightening us. I pretty much covered all of my questions during the interview. It'll be really interesting to see how his his book turns out, because I think there's, there's just so many interesting things there about how to rationally use uh, technology, how to rationally think about the challenges that life presents us with, including that nature presents us with, and then how how to intelligently use technology so that we we deal with those challenges and also we deal with the challenges that we inevitably create by overcoming the old challenges, but making sure uh, that uh, 
you know, the, the second set of challenges are much, much smaller than, uh, than the first, and those are progressively overcome. So I've thought about that a, a lot in the context of energy, and I think it's pretty straightforward uh, how to do it in, in energy. I think in general, we are doing it in energy. Uh, but this realm of infectious diseases, I think, even more requires the right type of philosophy of human progress and of technology. And it's definitely not a realm that has gotten it very much. So uh, I'm grateful for Dr. Adalja's work. Uh, it's, and it's something perhaps that we will get involved our, uh, in ourselves in the years uh, ahead. So that was, uh, yeah, really, really valuable. And I want to keep looking into new topics because the, the underlying philosophy that we use to analyze energy is so crucial for other fields. And just as it was missing in energy, it's certainly missing in other fields. Now, if you have followed me at all on any of the social media platforms or on our email list, which I always recommend uh, signing up to at industrialprogress.com, you're probably aware that I recently testified in front of the Senate Environment, Environment and Public Works Committee. Uh, I got into some interesting discussions with Senator Boxer. I, I made a provocative comment about Senator Whitehouse, who was on it anti-free speech campaign to destroy ExxonMobil for refusing to voice his false uh, catastrophist views about their products. And uh, it, it was a great experience. Uh, not that I was treated very well, although no, no fundamental complaints about that, but it was, it was very exciting to get to speak to our government to testify and to tell them the truth about what their policies are doing to energy and everything energy depends on, which is everything. And that it was very satisfying. And I was glad that I got a decent amount of time to talk. That's almost exclusively thanks to the Republican senators. The Democrat senators uh, attempted to give me uh, a total of, I think, three seconds to talk. I was able to outmaneuver uh, Barbara Boxer in certain ways to get a little bit more than that time. Uh, so anyway, you, you can watch it. It's on our website, industrialprogress.com, our YouTube page, youtube.com slash improve the planet. I definitely spread that around. It seems to have been very effective. All right. As usual, if you don't already and you like social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, the accounts are Alex Epstein, Center for Industrial Progress, I Love Fossil Fuels, and I Love Nuclear. Once again, sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Okay. That is it for this week. Hope you're in. I know a lot of you, or at least some of you, are uh, asking, Where's Power Hour? Where's Power Hour? As I said in previous episodes, we're not doing the once a week, at least for a little while, working on some, some big stuff in the background that I think will be more than worth the absence, but I'm glad that people like it and we will uh, continue to find interesting guests. So it won't be next week, but next time we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.